tonight, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome Professor Mike Wilson. He's a professor of microbiology, not bacteriology. Thanks for the introductions. Delightful to be here. <clears throat> I would prefer if you kept questions till the end, because I do find it disrupts the flow a bit. So keep your questions to the end if you don't mind. So um, the title of my talk is Me and My Microbes. I rather like that. And for the older people who realize that's the title of a jaunty little song, the younger people will never sort of remember that. Me, yeah, anyway, I won't sing it. Um, but uh, the central thesis of my talk is that we are a symbiosis and it's very important to recognize that, you know, the, the importance of microbes in our daily lives. Microbes, of course, are everywhere on this planet and including on us. And almost every environment on this planet has been colonized by microbes to some extent. And this is really, really strange when you think of some of the extreme environments on this planet. We can get bacteria growing at a pH as low as zero in sulfuric pools and geysers. Our califiles, I've been to this place, Lake Mono, it's a fantastic place with tufa, which are pure sort of calcium hydroxide, a very, very high pH, but bacteria and other microbes live there. Thermophiles can grow at 140 degrees centigrade. How on earth can they grow at this kind of temperature? Psychrophiles grow, you know, below one degree centigrade. Halophiles in 30% salt. Barophiles at huge atmospheric pressures. And anaerobes grow in the absence of oxygen and found in the ocean depths and are found in your colon. So all these extreme environments, bacteria can grow in them. So, and you know, there are an enormous variety of bacteria on Earth. There, it, we reckon there are about 10 million different species. But only 1% of these have ever been grown in the laboratory. So although microbiologists pride themselves on our knowledge of microbes, we only really know about 1% of the total number of microbes on this planet. So, given that we have these huge variety of extreme organisms, it's no surprise that microbes are found on any surface of a human that's exposed to the external en environment. And we've co-evolved with these microbes and we've formed a stable multi-species consortium and we call this consortium Homo sapiens. But it is a consortium of organisms. And we can recognize three different states of Homo sapiens. The only time that you are absolutely 100% mammalian is in the womb. There are no microbes. So these are mammalian cells. There are no microbes present. Once we are born, of course, then we get colonized mainly from the mother, from the vagina, from the skin, milk, saliva, from other individuals that are present at birth, from the air, and from the external environment in general. So babies come into the world 100% mammalian, but within seconds they start getting colonized. So here we have microbes living on the surface of these epithelial cells. As we mature, the proportions of microbes increases. And at the other extreme, when we die, we become 100% microbial. So we can recognize three different configurations of Homo sapiens. 
100% mammalian, 100% microbial, and the intermediate, most of us, are, consist of 90% microbial. Only 10% of our cells are actually mammalian. So they outnumber us by 10 to 1. So we are a symbiosis. A human being is a mammal microbial symbiosis. And by symbiosis, a very important term, this is a relationship in which both partners benefit. It's a form of interaction where all partners benefit. So microbes benefit and we benefit. Now, one of the important things to recognize is that this symbiosis increases the metabolic potential of humans enormously. Homo sapiens has only got about 30,000 genes, which is a great disappointment. You know, ants and maize have as many genes as we have. But we can say that, well, we have evolved far more than these organisms because our microbial symbionts supply us with an extra 4 million genes. So the genetic makeup of our microbial inhabitants means that we don't have to do a lot of the jobs you know, that they can do. So we are evolutionarily more advanced, one can argue. So in fact, maybe we should be renamed. We should be renamed Homo bacterians rather than Homo sapiens. I like to think we're more bacterial than wise. This is another example of an interesting animal symbiosis. So I'm now going to talk in more detail about what we call the indigenous microbiota of humans. I like to think of them as intimate strangers. They're very intimate in that they colonize all the parts of our body, except the internal tissues, but we know very, very little about them. So you know, we really need to know more about them. So the first question to ask is, what microbes are present and how many are there? Now, this is very important indeed. This is one of the take-home messages. If you only go home with one message tonight, I want it to be this, because I'm sick and tired of very respectable papers going on about the deadly virus MRSA or the deadly virus E. coli. There are six types of microbes. There are bacteria, there are fungi, viruses, protoctista, algae, and archaea. All of these are found on us except algae. These are photosynthetic organisms. These all have different physiologies, totally different physiologies, enormously different. Bacteria are very, very different from viruses. And yet, as I say, in the popular press, they seem to be sort of, you know, unable to distinguish between these groups of organisms. So, they're the six major groups of microbes. How can we identify which microbes are present? And how can we find out what they're up to? Well, it's very easy to study flowers. Very easy to study trees, very easy to study penguins, but how do you study organisms that are only a thousandth of a millimeter in size? And this is a typical bacterium. It's magnified a thousand times, and that's it. How do you study that? With great difficulty. The first thing we have to do in order to study these things is we have to grow them. And we don't grow them in this um, classic way. We need all sorts of things to enable them to grow. Just like any organism, a micro will need water, nutrients, minerals, vitamins, the right temperature, the right atmosphere, and the right acidity. So very complex growth requirements. 
In the laboratory, we grow microbes in these special plastic containers, which are called Petri dishes. And in the Petri dish, we put a special gel-like medium, um, uh, which contains all the nutrients, etc., that the microbes need to grow. The problem is that each type of microbe needs different nutrients, different minerals, different vitamins, different temperature, different atmosphere, different pH, different osmolarity, different barometric pressure, and infinite number of combinations and permutations. So you need a different medium and a different kind of incubator for each type of microbe. And what we do is, in order to grow them, we inoculate our microbe onto an agar medium, and then we put it into a special incubator which has the correct temperature, the correct atmosphere, the correct pH, etc., etc., to enable them to grow. Then each single microbe we inoculate onto that medium will grow into what we call a colony, a visible colony. And each of these colonies will contain around about a thousand million living cells. And some of these colonies are really, yeah, absolutely stunningly beautiful. And if I had an infinite amount of money, and if the government wasn't now insisting that all our research has to have a high impact and be of benefit directly to human beings, rather than just doing things because you're interested in them, I would spend the rest of my life trying to work out how this organism here, which you find in the mouth, how it produces these beautiful colonies. Why on earth does it grow like that? There must be a reason, but I don't know what it is. Um, anyway, it's quite difficult to grow microbes in the laboratory, but we have millions of microbes just growing on our surfaces. You know, no great problem. It doesn't seem to present them with any great problem. So, to a microbe, any human being is simply a breathing, excreting, walking, talking, reproducing, feeding collection of incubators. And each of the different regions of the body is an incubator that provides different conditions and different nutrients, so enabling different types of microbes to grow at that body site. And it's interesting that microbes have evolved to utilize and take advantage of all human activities for their own benefit. Breathing provides opportunities for microbes to colonize and being transmitted somewhere else. Excreting provides an opportunity for microbes to be transmitted somewhere else. Walking enables microbes to be transported to different environments. Talking, we're spraying out microbes all the time we talk. Reproducing um, gives us an opportunity for transmission of microbes, tra sexually transmitted diseases, for example. And feeding provides nutrients for indigenous microbiota. So all human activities, one can argue that the microbes are, you know, have um, colonized us and directed our evolution to provide means of transmitting organisms around the planet, if you want to think that way. So what organisms are actually there? Most of the studies of the microbiota of humans have concentrated on finding out what bacteria are present. Bacteria in many ways are easier to work with than most of the other groups of microbes. And we've identified more than 2,000 different bacterial species, about 500 types of viruses, 17 types of fungi, and five types of protoctista. These are amoeba-like organisms. So quite a variety of different microbes. How many other? At the last count, there are about 100,000 million million bacteria on an adult. In other words, there are 10 times as many bacterial cells as mammalian cells. So whereabouts on the body are they? They're on all surfaces exposed to the external environment. There's skin, the eyes, the respiratory system, 
gastrointestinal tract, the urinary system, and the reproductive system. These internal systems to an, a microbe that are exposed to the external environment, and so they get colonized. The only parts of your bodies that aren't colonized by microbes are your internal tissues, you know, the inside of the liver, or you know, any, any of the sort of you know, the connective tissues. And whereabouts on the body are they? Now, those of you who are a little bit older might have heard of a guy called Leonard Cohen, who said in famously one of his songs that the largest organ of the body is the skin. This is very poetic, but it's totally wrong, of course. And the skin only has a surface area of about 1.8 square meters, whereas the intestinal tract has got 200 square meters. Most of the microbes you find in a human being are actually in the intestinal tract. So if, in terms of actual numbers, um, in the intestinal tract, these are the number of microbes in millions. There are 100 million, million mi microbes in the intestinal tract. The oral cavity has large numbers, and the skin far fewer numbers because of its much smaller surface area. And if we redraw a human being to reflect the density of population of microbes on that human being, we get this kind of homunculus, something with huge intestinal tract, a huge oral cavity, large arm armpits, and great big you know, toes, gaps between your toes. Um, so, all surfaces of the human body are colonized by microbes. But an qu interesting question to ask is, well, are, are the same microbes present at all the different various body sites? The answer to that, the short answer to that, is no. The type of microbes found at a site will depend upon what environment is present at that site. And each site on the body has um, a different set of environmental determinants. These are what nutrients are there, the pH, the temperature, the atmosphere, the redox potential, the water content, the osmotic pressure. All of these will affect what kind of bacteria or other, other microbes are present. Then we have mechanical factors such as fluid flow, muscular movements which will tend to control what kind of bacteria and other microbes are present. And then of course you have biological factors the innate immune response, and other microbes which can fight off colonizing microbes. So I haven't got time to go through all the different body sites, so let's just take by way of example, let's take a closer look at the skin. So this is a, um, a Damien, what do you call him? This is a Hearst, that's right, so say Bartholomew. So at first sight you think the skin, it all looks the same, but if you look closer at the skin, you'll find that the different regions have got very different characteristics and so offer a very different set of environmental conditions for microbes. And this is a kind of microbes view of the skin. Remember, we've got to really get down to the micro level, think sort of small. That's a cross-section through skin, magnified, magnified. These are skin squames, and these are the bacteria on the skin squames. So very, very small indeed. So to a microbe, the whole of the skin is a vast area, as big as a planet almost. And these are the kind of variations you get on the surface of the skin. This is temperature. So you can see that the different body sites have a very, very different temperatures, ranging from 25 to 35. So that will affect what kind of microbes will grow at the different body sites. If you look at the pH, the pH of the body varies tremendously. On the forehead, the pH is about 4.8. Now remember, a neutral pH is 7. pH is a logarithmic scale, so it means that the pH of the forehead is 100 times lower, so 100 times more acidic than neutral. 
And there are, most sites on the body are either neutral or um, acidic. There are very few alkaline sites for some reason. So the pH varies quite a lot uh, on a body. And if you look at the kind of nutrients you get on the skin surface, most of the nutrients on the skin surface are lipids in nature. And this shows us, this is a simple diagram, which shows the distribution of lipids on the skin surface in terms of micrograms per centimetre squared. And you can see tremendous variation. The forehead and the chest has a very high concentration of lipids. So we may expect to find bacteria that really like lipids growing in these bits. Other parts of the body have very low concentration of lipids. Um, the body produces a wide range of different antimicrobial compounds to try and keep microbes, reduce microbial colonization. And one of the antimicrobial peptides that's produced is a peptide called psoriasin. And this is just by way of illustrating there are about 40 different antimicrobial peptides. But this just shows the kind of variation you get and the concentration of this antimicrobial peptide on the surface of the skin. You can see very high concentrations here, very high concentrations there, low concentrations in these parts of the body. So they are going to affect the, um, the microbial concentration. So we have a huge variety of different habitats. Each of these habitats is suitable for the colonization of only a relatively few number of different species of microbe. And then, of course, the skin itself has a number of antimicrobial mechanisms to try and prevent colonization. Um, we have airflow across the surface, this sweeps microbes away. We have a process of desquamation. Each of us sheds about 20 grams of skin a day. This is a, a basic body defense mechanism not only of the skin, but of the internal organs, the, the mucosa, are constantly sh being shed into the environment, taking with them colonizing microbes. And then the skin has a low moisture content, a high salt content, lots of antibacterial fatty acids and antimicrobial peptides, which help to reduce the concentration of bacteria and other microbes on the surface. But all of these factors vary across the skin's surface. So, the accumulation of all that, the idea of the different environments, etc., means that the kinds of microbes you find at different body parts are very, very different. So, for example, Staphylococcus epidermidis, this is the first named bacterium, notice, we're 20 minutes into a talk on microbes, we haven't actually named anything, so this is the first one, Staph epidermidis. And you can see that the concentrations differ widely over the surface of an adult human. You know, so about 80% of the microbes on these dark blue areas are Staph epidermidis. But the light blue regions, less than 9% of the microbes are Staph epidermidis. So very, very distri uh, different distribution. This is the concentration of Propionibacterium acnes at various sites. You can see the head and the chest have quite high concentrations of this organism, whereas the feet and the legs, very low concentrations. So again, a different distribution. Having tried to give you an ecological understanding of colonization of um, different body sites, I must now ask you to think further beyond this the first organisms arriving on a newborn baby are called pioneer organisms. And what organisms colonize the different sites in that baby will depend entirely on the environmental conditions dictated by the baby and that body site on the baby. But once a pioneer organism has colonized that 
what happens is that organism will grow and will change the environment. And this will create conditions that are suitable for the colonization of organisms which may not have been able to colonize in the first place. So we get this phenomenon known as ecological succession. And this, if you want to think on a macro scale, is exactly what you get on the surface of planet Earth. When a volcano erupts and sterilizes, wipes out all life, um, you know, after a volcanic eruption, you, you'll have heard, read in the papers about, micro, about um, uh, ecological succession. You get algae growing there. The algae change the environment, so you can get seeds um, landing there. They can grow. They change in the environment, and you get plants, other plants growing. So exactly the same thing happens in a human being. So we get this microbial succession. And in the end, you get one of my favorite diagrams. You get what is called a climax community. This is a community of organisms which is not dependent on the host, but is dependent on um, an environment created by other organisms. This is a section of a microbial community on the surface of the tooth, part of it, right? So for example, Streptococcus is a pioneering organism on the tooth. It will secrete succinate. Now, succinate is a, an organic chemical which is required by an organism called a treponema. Now, treponemas cannot grow in the absence of succinate. We do not produce succinate. So treponemas can't be found in your mouth until Streptococcus has grown there, produced it, and um, uh, so the treponemas can grow. The treponemas produce things like um, amino acids and various peptides, which are required by other organisms, um, such as Porphyromonas and Prevotella. These organisms also need vitamin K, which is only produced by Valinella, which can only grow on lactic acid, which is produced by Gamella and Leptotritia. So we get this vast network and interconnection of these organisms, all mutually dependent. So, and this is called a climax community. And it's the same thing on a macro scale you get in any forest, tropical rainforest, or any grassland or whatever, a different network of organisms. But this is on a micro scale. Absolutely fascinating. So, if we go back to the skin, remember we talked about the skin, if you um, look at the different um, sites on the, on the skin, you'll find very, very different microbial communities. Now, just look at the colours. Forget the names of these bugs. Each colour represents a different type of bug, but I don't want to confuse you by all these names. But just look at the colours. So you can see that in the toe cleft, you get you know, a predominance of crinibacteria and a few staphylococci. Here in the auditory canal, you get mainly staphylococci and few crinibacteria. On the forearm, almost totally staphylococci and virtually no crinibacteria. On the perineum, you get almost all crinibacteria and very few um, staphylococci, but we're starting to get these gram-negative rods in there, such as um, uh, bacteroides. So, just looking at the different colours, you can see that a different each body site, you get a very, very different community. That's on the skin surface. So each body region or body system has a variety of different habitats and each of these has a different characteristic microbial community. So even if you look in the oral cavity where you have a lot of very, very similar kinds of habitats, all the different mucosal surfaces, again if you just look at these community compositions you can see they're slightly different for each of those different body surfaces.
So, how general are these um, community compositions? Basically, we all have similar kinds of microbial compositions, but you do get variations between individuals because of differences in age. Age will affect the composition at any body site quite remarkably because of hormonal changes, because of different rates of desquamation, different pHs. Um, sex has a profound uh, effect as well. Diet, the health status, the climate, the clothing, what hygiene practices you undergo, and the housing conditions. These all tend to make the microbial composition on everybody's nose here slightly different. But the, the, the gross composition will be similar, but they'll be all slightly different. So we're coming around to this concept that every body site has a core community of microbes, but we get variation at the species or the strain level within individuals. So I can guarantee I'll put any amount of money on it that if I took a sample of your noses, I would find about 80% coagulase negative staphylococci, but which coagulase negative staphylococci, which strain or which isolate would vary very slightly amongst all of us. So we have a core community, but there are slight variations between individuals. Now, <clears throat> all of this kind of, I hope, makes some kind of sense to you. Um, and microbiologists have worked on this kind of basis of culturing organisms for hundreds of years since Van Leeuwenhoek, so about three or four hundred years. But there's been a revolution in the science of microbiology in the last um, 15 years or so. And one of the problems we had to face is that if you take a sample from any body site and look at it through the microscope, actually count how many bugs are there, and then you try and grow all those bugs, you can never do it. We can grow only about 10% of the bugs we see. So, you know, fewer, so fewer than 10% of the, of the organisms can actually be grown in the laboratory. So we're ignorant about 90% of the microbes that exist on human beings. So it's quite a, sort of, you know, quite a shock to microbiologists. And <clears throat> nowadays, we depend upon culture, what we call culture-independent techniques. So instead of growing up microbes in the laboratory, we analyze the genes that are present in a sample, and on the basis of that, try and identify what bugs are present. And to give you an example, if we look at the oral cavity, no matter how hard we try, we can only grow about 300 different species, only 300 different species in an average adult. But genetic analysis of this community shows that there are 20,000 different species. 20,000. So, you know, we don't know, well, we know very little about the other 19,700 species in the oral cavity. So it's quite a, as a microbiologist makes you think, oh, I better sort of, you know, yeah, close the shop and sort of go home. So it's quite a daunting task. Although we quite sort of, you know, we, we seem to think that we know quite a lot about the um, indigenous microbiota. In fact, we know very, very little. But the Seventh Cavalry have come to the rescue, and in 2008, the National Institutes of Health in the USA threw 115 million dollars 
in a project to try and identify all the bugs that are on human beings. So it's a terrific amount of money. <coughs> Fortunately, the European Commission, I know there may not be flavor of the month, but to microbiologists, they are a great lifesaver, seeing as our government is reducing the amount of spending on um, scientific projects, scientific research. The European Commission is, in fact, increasing their budget by about 40% and is financing a lot of projects looking at the indigenous microbiota. So that's good news. Well, I've given you a flavour of what bugs are present. The next question to ask is, what are these bugs actually up to? It's not appreciated just how important microbes are to um, humanity. First of all, one of the most important aspects of our indigenous microbiota is that they exclude exogenous pathogens. Now, by an exogenous pathogen, I mean an organism that can harm you and comes from the external environment or from other source, such as another kind of animal. People and the TV, radio, the media is obsessed with eliminating microbes from our environment. One of the greatest travesties of antimicrobial agents these days is to incorporate them into breadboards and um, sandwich boxes and into children's toys. This is outrageous. The idea of trying to sterilize the environment because we're just bombarded with the idea that all bugs are bad. The only good bug is a dead bug. This is not right. You know, we need our bugs. We need an indigenous microbiota because one of the most important functions is it excludes the bad bugs. These bugs, most of them that live on you, are good. I'll come to the exceptions later. Most of them are good. And we need them to prevent other bugs colonizing us, the bad ones. But not only that, our immune functions are totally dependent on exposure to microbes at an early age. If you are not exposed to your indigenous microbiota, your immune system will not develop properly. And we've studied this in germ-free animals. Germ-free animals are really, really weird. Weird things indeed. And you're certainly, so immune functions are totally dependent on exposure to microbes. Differentiation and development of tissues and organs, it's only been shown very recently in the last five years that the development of your gut is totally dependent on colonization by bacteroides species, normal inhabitants of the gut. Your capillary network and your, um, your, the, the, the microvilli on the cells will not develop unless they're exposed to bacteria. I'll come more to, I'll talk about this in more detail later. The gut microbiota harvests nutrients from plant polymers. This comes back to the idea that we only have 30,000 genes, but our mi microbiota has 40 million genes. We cannot digest cellulose, and most of the plant material is cellulose. We can't digest it, it's just wasted. Except the bugs in our gut do digest it, do break it up, and we absorb the nutrients from that cellulose. Many um, vitamins, many of our essential vitamins are produced by microbes in the gut. They also generate energy. 10% of our daily needs are provided by metabolism of the gut microbiota. 10% of your energy needs. So if you wiped out all the bugs in your gut, 
you'd have a shortfall of 10% of your energy needs. Um, they regulate body fat storage and also they detoxify harmful dietary constituents. In other words, they are cancer preventing. And I want to illustrate this beautiful symbiosis that has evolved over the millennia by concentrating on the intestinal tract. Now, listen to this story. <clears throat> In the upper regions of the gastrointestinal tract, the esophagus, the stomach, the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum, you have an environment created by the host which is very, very hostile to microbes. So the, those regions of the gut don't have many microbes. And it's in these regions of the gut that you get the digestive enzymes produced. So many digestive enzymes, your amylases, which break down starch, your proteases, which break down um, proteins, your lipases, which um, break down lipids, are produced in these regions. And there's no competition with microbes. Microbes can't live there, so there's no competition. So in these regions, the host digestive enzymes digest these polymers, and they're absorbed by the host across the mucosal surfaces. So what happens is that the um, plant polymers, which are not digested by these enzymes in the upper regions of the gut, because we don't have enzymes to do that, the plant polymers go into the colon. And here we provide an ideal environment for the growth of microbes. So this is part of the symbiosis. We benefit these microbes by giving them a nice um, environment. It's warm, it's moist, and loads of nutrients. And in turn, the microbes degrade cellulose and these very, very complex plant polymers, which we can't degrade. And they degrade them to low molecular mass um, substances, especially short-chain fatty acids like butyric acid. And these, are this, these acids are taken up by our gut epithelium and are converted to energy. So this is a lovely example of a symbiosis, uh, absolutely beautiful example of this symbiotic system. So the colon is one of the most densely populated ecosystems on Earth. There are up to 10 to the 14 uh, microbial cells in the colon. And again, I don't want you to go away without learning some weird and wonderful new names. So this is um, uh, an analysis of the cultivable bacteria, the cultivable organisms in the gut, in the colon. And you can see that we get organisms such as Bifidobacterium, Valinella, Enterococci, Enterobacteriaceae, Eubacterium. Now look at this light yellow one here. These are the, um, the Clostridium species. So this is the composition of the microbiota in the colon as determined by growing bugs in the laboratory. Taking a lump of poo, putting it on a petri dish, and this is what you get. And these are the kind of organisms. Now, there are about 1,500 different microbes detected that grow in the laboratory from a sample of poo. They impress your friends with things like, you know, Peptostreptococcus productus, Aruminococcus torquis, Lactobacillus rhamnosus, Morexella morganii, just a few of the ones that are found there. But look at the genetic analysis of a lump of poo. The green sample, the Clostridia, were about 1.7% 
of the culpable microbiota, but if you do a genetic analysis, you find that the clostridia are nearly 50% of the microbiota, a very, very different view of what's present. I just touched on this. This is, this is quite interesting. Something that's been sort of come emerging in the last three or four years is the relationship between the microbiota and obesity. Uh, there are, t as you've seen, there are hundreds, probably thousands of different bacteria in the colon. But microbiologically, we can divide them into two major families of organisms called the firmicutes and the bacteroidetes. And if you count how many firmicutes and bacteroidetes and express this as a ratio, you find that there's a very interesting thing happens when you take fat people, let's call a spade a spade, fat people, and you put them on a diet. As they diet, you find that the ratio between firmicutes and bacteroidetes actually decreases. And lean individuals have a much um, lower ratio of firmicutes to bacteroidetes than fat people. And as fat people diet, their microbiota, or the ratio of these two huge families of organisms, become very closer to that of thin people. So, one can argue that, you know, our diet, it's not really surprising, our diet influences what bugs we have in our um, colon. But one could possibly also argue that, well, if we can readjust the microbiota in our colon, we can possibly cure obesity. So that's, you know, it needs a lot more research before we can come to that conclusion. So far, I've concentrated on the beneficial aspects of our indigenous microbiota, but of course, there is a dark side. Some members of the indigenous microbiota are amongst our deadliest pathogens. So if we take some examples, Neisseria meningitidis is a normal <coughs> member of the indigenous microbiota of the pharynx, but it causes a life-threatening disease, meningitis. Haemophilus influenzae causes a wide range of dangerous diseases. Strep pneumoniae causes meningitis, pneumonia, sinusitis, otitis. Strep pyogenes, the killer flesh-eating bug, produces uh, is responsible for dozens of different types of infections, and Staph aureus similarly. So these are all organisms which are part of our indigenous microbiota. Interestingly, I don't know why, um, interestingly, all of these species inhabit the upper respiratory tract. And if you look, this is an analysis of the microbiota of the pharynx. And here we have sort of different organisms here. This is the kind of percentage, the proportion of the indigenous microbiota of the pharynx, which um, uh, of this bug here. And in these kind of analyses, you always get a huge range of variations. So where possible, I've taken the range of values in different studies. So look at Haemophilus influenzae. This is quite a dangerous organism, but 31% of us carry this organism in the throat. Neisseria meningitidis, 8% of people carry this organism. Strep pneumonia, about 7%. Strep pyogenes, about 6%. Staph aureus, 18%. So quite a lot of us carry these deadly organisms. By and large, these organisms, because they're part of the kind of complex community which I've shown you, are kept 
in con they kept um, controlled, the numbers are controlled by the other bugs that are present. So you can imagine what will happen if you start disrupting that community. We can get overgrowth of these deadly pathogens. So how stable are these communities? The first thing to realize, of course, and a very important message, is that antibiotics can seriously disrupt these communities. Seriously disrupt them. So when we, talk, uh, when we think about this diagram, this is a typical community, if you knock out one of these bugs, the repercussions are tremendous. We get wholesale changes in the composition of the community. So let's look at the adverse effects of antibiotics. First of all, if you, we've seen how complex these communities are. So if you take a broad spectrum antibiotic, something that will knock out quite a few different bugs, what happens is you remove the controls on these organisms, such as Candida albicans, Clostridium difficile, and Enterococci, and these will start growing. These organisms are naturally resistant to many antibiotics. So Clostridium difficile, you've all heard of this, this is a major hospital pathogen, it's present in many individuals but at very, very low numbers. And it's kept in control by all the other 200 or 300 species that are in the gut. If you start wiping out those other species, this will grow. Um, <coughs> antibiotics often cause diarrhea because of this upset in the microbiota. Antibiotics can actually increase the virulence of some species. For example, Staph aureus. If you expose Staph aureus to some antibiotics, you increase, you stimulate the production of toxins. Antibiotics will select for resistant strains in previously susceptible species. And this is why we've got this problem, huge problem, with methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. And antibiotics also, of course, you know, um, no man is an island, all our um, uh, Fecal material goes into wastewater and sewage, antibodies go along with it and start disrupting the ecosystems in rivers and in soil. This <coughs> problem has been recognized by many distinguished bodies, the House of Lords, the Standing Medical Advisory Committee, the European Commission and the WHO have all recognized this as a major problem. And <coughs> some data from uh, in, in the UK, this is deaths due to MRSA, which has steadily increased over the last few years. And this has increased up to 2010, and for some reason, um, possibly greater hygiene, I don't know, um, it's, it, it's leveled off. But at the same time, deaths due to Clostridium difficile have increased, so there's no room for complacency. This gives you a European perspective on um, resistant organisms. The dark red shows that up to 50% of um, Staph aureus are resistant to a wide range of antibiotics, specifically methicillin. So England, Spain, Italy, high proportions of these resistant organisms. Escherichia coli, which we've all heard about <coughs> because of the outbreak in Germany. Um, look at this, Spain, Italy, uh, this time in the UK isn't too bad, high proportions of this organism resistant to um, uh, many antibiotics, including the fluoroquinolones. 
<coughs> this is a list of antibiotic therapies that are threatened because of the growing resistance um, of organisms to antibiotics. And you can see that this is a wide range of important life-threatening infections. So we now live in an era of superbugs, you know, they're indestructible, you know, it's going to be a sort of huge, uh, they do realistically and seriously um, pose a huge threat to medical science. How did this arise? A number of um, factors have caused this um, dangerous problem, and the widespread or overuse of antibiotics, inappropriate prescribing by clinicians, for example, taking kids along who've got a sore throat to the doctor and parents insist on having antibiotics when 80% of sore throats are caused by viruses against which antibiotics are useless. Failure to control use by the general public in many countries, including many European countries, you can buy antibiotics over the counter, which is outrageous. A failure to complete the whole course of an antibiotic, that tends to select for resistant organisms and the use as animal growth promoters. Fortunately, in the EC, um, we reduced bans on using these as animal growth promoters. But it's also complacency. You get some very, very distinguished individuals like McFarlane Burnett, who actually was a Nobel Prize winner, coming out with statements like this. By the late 20th century, we could anticipate the virtual elimination of infectious disease as a significant factor in social life. William Stewart, the United States Surgeon General in 1967, said we can close the book on infectious diseases. So some very distinguished and important individuals, um, you know, have, in the late 60s, said forget about infectious diseases, they're not important. And what's happened is that pharmaceutical companies have taken on this idea they saw there's little money in um, uh, developing new antimicrobial agents, but a lot of money in developing drugs for treating sort of cardiovascular disease and these chronic diseases, which you're never going to get a cure for, but you know, co massive consumption of these agents over long term. So why invest in antibiotics against which bacteria ultimately become resistant anyway? So it doesn't make sense. So because of that, we have um, fewer and fewer antibiotics in the pipeline. And yet, some very distinguished people back in 1910 foresaw this and warned against this. This is Paul Ehrlich, the discoverer of Salvasan, which is the first antimicrobial agent to be used by the general public. And he said, resistance follows the antibiotic like a faithful shadow. Very perceptive. So, <clears throat> the net effect of all this is that the number of antibiotics that are being produced by companies has fallen dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years. And the ones that are being um, produced are basically variations on a theme. There's no new classes of antimicrobial agents coming onto the market. So we've got a double whammy here. We've got a huge increase in antibiotic resistance, but a decrease in the number of agents that are effective against, them, uh, against these bugs. So we have to um, try and control antibiotic use um, and develop new antimicrobials. I want to finish off by um, <clears throat> this kind of, I think the general public is quite aware of this problem of antibiotic resistance and the problems of dealing with infectious diseases. And 
being an old hippie myself, I can sort of really sort of, you know, empathize with people who want to have a more natural approach to controlling infections or to um, trying to uh, encourage uh, the good bugs to survive in our bodies. So, uh, can we encourage a beneficial microbiota in human beings? Uh, and there are two main approaches that have been suggested to this to try and um, maintain a beneficial microbiota. One is the use of probiotics and one is the use of prebiotics. Probiotics are live microbes and you, the idea is you're supposed to um, ingest these live microbes and try and increase the numbers of beneficial species. Prebiotics are non-digestible polymers. Polymers that are not digested by human beings. But can be, but can be um, um, uh, utilized by microbes in the colon. And so we can use these to encourage the growth of beneficial species. So first of all, probiotics. Now, probiotics could theoretically be used at anybody's site. And um, for many, many years, um, uh, females who suffered from vaginitis, uh, candidosis, um, were, were using um, lactobacillus, using yogurt to try and control the vaginal microbiota, a very sensible thing to do. But, so theoretically, it could be used at anybody's site, but most of the emphasis has been on the intestinal tract because there's certainly a wide range of conditions which we think are attributable to an unhealthy balance of microbes. They're also easy to administer, and there's a ready supply of suitable microbes. So ideally, to use a, a pro, any probiotic for intestinal use should be of human origin, so it can colonize. It should be harmless, obviously. Should be able to withstand manufacturing conditions. Should survive passage through the intestinal tract, especially the stomach, which is very acidic. Should be able to colonize intestinal surfaces. Should act against pathogens by a variety of mechanisms. And should exert its effects rapidly. Now, you can imagine with all those characteristics, there's not many bugs will satisfy all those um, uh, requirements. But there is good evidence to support the use of probiotics in infectious diarrhea, in antibiotic-associated diarrhea, and in a disease known as pouchitis in those who have had a colostomy. So there are a limited number of um, uh, situations where probiotics have been demonstrated to have a positive effect. But what I, and I, I like the concept, the concept is ecological in nature, makes sense. But I've seen little evidence that daily use of a probiotic in a healthy individual is really of any benefit. But that's probably because so few controlled studies have been carried out. For, um, manufacturers of probiotics are not pharmaceutical companies. They're not big buck earners. You know, and you, to do a proper randomized controlled trial, you do need a lot of money. So <clears throat> I do think that probiotics are a promising approach for modulating the intestinal microbiota. But we do need to know more about the composition of the intestinal microbial communities. As I've said, you know, basically, we've only studied the, the cultivable microbiota, not the genetic analysis of these communities. So we don't know enough about the composition really to say this bug is going to be good, that bug is going to be bad. So we need a lot more um, clinical trials. Prebiotics 
are basically a food ingredient that can stimulate the growth of a particular group of organisms in the intestinal tract and thereby improve host health. The problem is with this approach is that we really don't know which are very, very good bugs. That's the problem. We have ideas that um, you know, organisms such as lactobacilli and bifidobacteria are good, but not a lot of evidence in support of that. <clears throat> Again, the essential attributes, they've got to get over the problem of gastric acidity, they've got to be able to be degraded by the intestinal microbiota, and they've got to stimulate the selected organisms. But what organisms to stimulate, we're not so sure. Probably lactobacilli, probably bifidobacteria, but there's not a lot of evidence in support of those. The most frequently investigated prebiotics are inulin from chicory, oligofructoses, galacto-oligosaccharides, and lactulose. A lot of work has been done on these. And there is evidence to suggest that they may be beneficial in these chronic conditions such as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And they've certainly been shown to reduce the number of intestinal infections in infants. So I think there's a lot of mileage in prebiotics once we know more about the clonic microbiota. So finally, just the last few slides, take-home messages, the idea that the only good bug is a dead bug, we've got to you know, forget that, that's not true. And the second batch of take-home messages, we really need to know a lot more um, about our indigenous microbiota because they ex exert a whole range of beneficial effects. We have to learn to appreciate and cherish our microbiota. And I've written a couple of books on this subject, and I was never a fruit or vegetable eater. But having really studied this to a large extent, I'm absolutely convinced that we definitely eat, need to eat a lot more fruits and vegetables. They're really good for you. If you want to know more details, there's a couple of books I've written. This is the most recent one, um, which examines the um, indigenous microbiota in um, great detail. That's about it. Um, I'm going to be really stick my neck out here and do something which experience tells me I should never, ever do. But I'm going to ask if there are any Bob Dylan fans in the audience. Right. So do you know the, word, do you know the tune to Desolation Row? I'm not going to sing it, but yes. All right, right. Well, you know, well, I'm a lousy singer. I, I once made the mistake of trying to sing this, and <laughs> I did it at the Wellcome Trust, and um, the Wellcome Trust had, um, had promised me a backing group to sing this, and in the end they reckoned they didn't have a license to do that, so I was left singing this song by myself with no backing group. Um, I've rewritten um, a, a famous <laughs> Bob Dylan song called Desolation Row, um, to reflect the different microbes that are found in the indigenous microbiota. So if anybody wants to sing along to this, please feel free, but I'm not going to. If I had the backing group, I would do it, yeah. Okay, so that's it. Thank you.